Welcome to the Courage to Lead interview series for leaders who empower others to create supportive and inclusive workplaces where people can do their absolute best. Each week I will interview a leader who epitomizes the ability to empower others to lead and create amazing workplaces, environments and communities because of that skill. In these interviews I try as much as possible to let our guests do all the talking as they are the stars and not me. I trust you enjoy the lessons and wisdoms each guest shares and if you're like me, listen to the interviews a number of times to capture some of the true gems of leadership we hear each week. This is the first podcast in the Mentor Stories of the Courage to Lead interview series where we interview the mentors of our previous guest. In this case, we are introducing Andrew Colvin, AOAPM, former Australian Federal Police Commissioner and the mentor to Mick Willing, who was the third guest on this podcast series. Andrew says he was not a natural leader, but that he could help help mould the people around him. Andrew puts forward that he is still learning every day, and we all are. We are all far from perfect as human beings. Throughout this interview, it is obviously the support, respect and gratitude Andrew has for his wife and his family. Andrew's first true experience of leadership for him was when the Bali bombings occurred on the 12th of October 2002. And he says about himself that was when he first took his first real steps forward as a leader in a crisis. Some of the gems throughout this interview that Andrew talks about is, let's just have a go and not look for perfection. The world doesn't work that way. We learn along the way. Other gems? We spend our whole life in our workplaces. So it's important that we seek to work with people who we want to work with and have some fun. And Andrew's biggest thing about a workplace as a leader is promote creativity to do things differently. This first part of the interview, because this interview is a two-part series because we are treated to over two hours of wisdom from Andrew's discussion with us in the podcast series. In the first part of the interview, he talks about his Harvard Kennedy Leadership School experiences where he spent 12 months in the USA with his family um, whilst he was learning at, at an, ext- an extreme level of leadership that not many of us get exposed to. Throughout this experience, Andrew learnt that it's so, it's important, probably crucial to understand other people's perspective if you're actually going to make progress. And some gems that came out of this Harvard experience is how we do things is the important part of a process. The ends do not justify the means. Andrew laughs in this in, in this uh, about his Harvard leadership experience that he was one of only three men to ever take part in a women in leadership course um, at that time, and he learnt from that women in leadership course that nothing is ever going to change if nothing changes. We have to be prepared to do something different if we want the outcome to be different. After his half Harvard um, experience. Andrew found it difficult to come back to the AFP and the Australian Federal Police and actually thought about looking for a new career. But that is when 
the mentoring of, of Mick Willing comes into play. And Mick Willing was nominated by Andrew as one of the reasons he elected to stay in the Australian Federal Police. He found that Andrew and Mick Willing had a similar philosophy and they both wanted to do good things and they wanted to, didn't want to continue to do the same old things. Before this interview commences, I will leave you with this one impression of Andrew Colvin. His LinkedIn profile picture has him in full uniform as the Commissioner of the Australian Federal Police, sitting on the floor speaking to a group of primary school children in their classroom. This kind of says it all, empowering the next generation at their level, no ears or graces. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. I loved every second of it. Welcome to the Courage to Lead interview series. Our next guest, a wonderful um, uh, guest who I'm exploring interviewing people who some of our previous guests, in this case, Mick Willing, um, indicated uh, who their mentors were. So welcome to the show, Andrew Colvin, firm, former um, Commissioner of the Australian Federal Police between um, 2014 to 2019. So. Thank you for coming on the show, Andrew. Yeah, Alan, thanks for having me on. It's very nice of Mick to say that. Yeah, no, it's um, his and his interview was one of the, has been one of the most popular because of how um, I suppose humble and dignified he was. Yeah. So yeah, and to have the have the accolades that he I think the word he used a lot was gravitas that you know you possessed um and yeah uh, so it's wonderful to have you on the show. So. Without embarrassing you any further, um, <laughs> let's go. Get, let's get straight into it. Every guest on this show is asked, gets asked two questions. So the first question I'm going to ask you is, um, what was your first ever true experience of leadership? And it can be as a five-year-old boy or it can be yesterday. And then why? Why? Oh, boy, that's a good question. Um, look, I think... I think we all have experiences, right? We all we all have these things that shape us. Um, and you know, I wasn't a natural leader in school, but I think I was always someone that could help mould people around me, right? So, you know, growing up in the eighties in central Queensland, leadership the concept of leadership was a different sort of concept to what I would embrace. And it was much more, you know, visible, um, clear. Uh, leadership from somebody in authority, and that was never my that was never my thing. Um, I I'm still learning every day, Alan. To be really frank with you, and I think we all are, and and we're far from perfect individuals. Uh, but for me, when I think about what was what was it when I realised I had to step up and 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 do do my bit as a leader, it was barley bombings. There's no question, and, and it was that that started a journey that I've talked about a few times publicly about. Um, you know, it was a good friend of mine in the Sydney office who, a couple of days after the barley bombings, rang me up, and he said, "AJ, we just need you to take ownership of this and just make some decisions and get on with it." And up to that point, I was trying to be the the friend to everybody and just trying to bring everyone along the same journey that I was on, but not really sure what I was doing. And that's when I realised you just got to make, you got to take steps forward, especially in a crisis. And you've been in those situations. You've just got to take steps forward. And if you wait for it to be 100% right, you'll never do anything. You'll you'll be, you'll stagnate. So I, I took the decision at that point to go, okay, I may not know the right solution. I may not know 
perfect, have the perfect answer. I'm just going to start moving forward and bring people with me. So that was probably my biggest lesson, um, and I built on that. Uh, so that's the one that sticks out in my mind. I bring people. Can you? I've only. I was just in Bali recently, actually, and I saw the. Um, I saw the memorial, but I can't uh, for the life of me remember the date. What what was the date of the Bali bombings? Yeah, it was the twelfth of October, two thousand and two. Two thousand and two. Okay. So what? Um, I'm just looking at your. So you weren't commissioner then. Um, oh God, no. no, uh, no. So so <laughs> so what? Um, I find that, and and oh, I don't mind if you don't mind. We might explore this because it's such a well-known issue, um, um, occurrence. So your friend who's in the Sydney office says to you, to 2002, Andrew Colvin, yep. um, we need you to step up and take ownership of this. Yep. Explain that. What 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 yeah. what rank what rank were you then? And so and, yeah, go yeah yeah. So I mean, essentially, you know, I have my wife to thank for this. I've never been someone who chased promotion. Um, my wife has always been the one that then, and she was in the police force with me, uh, who encouraged me to apply for promotion. And I was in Sydney office in um, mid 2002. We decided as a family that we wanted to move to Canberra. So I was ready to go back onto the road in ACT policing as a sergeant. But uh, a, a couple of rounds of promotions came up, as you understand well in policing. And one of them was for a new position that was going to be created for the first time called the National Coordinator of Counterterrorism. And this is six or seven months post 9-11, where the AFP and all our partners are trying to understand the new world that we're in and how do we how do we react to it. So my um, my wife said, look, put your hand in the ring because you won't get it. I didn't think I would get it. Um, and she said, but we'll learn we'll learn about the process. We'll understand what you need to do um, to be promoted. Anyway, I um, I applied and I won the position and I started in that position on October the 1st, 2002 and 12 days later, Bali happened. And, you know, I started in that role with uh, as a superintendent. I had um, two staff and the and the direction from the commission at the time was AJ build a national capability for the AFP and build us a national capability for policing. So how do we bring our law enforcement partners, our intelligence partners on the road? Now, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't say this flippantly, but if ever you want to get resources and attention, the Bali bombings did that. So I'm happily kind of less than two weeks into the job thinking, well, you know, I'll put some frameworks in place, I'll ask lots of people, I'll make some relationships. And then Bali bombings happens and everything is obviously um, a focus of attention and, and I'm able to, to build things. But, but, but there was no plan, Alan. I mean, you've been in these situations in times of crisis. There's no, there's very rarely a book that you pull off the shelf in policing that tells you what, what the next steps are. And mm. there certainly wasn't one at this time for mm. something like a Bali bombing and the massive um, Australian infrastructure that lifted and moved to Bali with the with the good grace of the Indonesian authorities to support them. And it was about day, it was, it was night three. And I we knew that we, you know, we had many things that we were trying to manage. We were trying to manage investigational to support to the Indonesian asset police on the ground, lots of Australian um, state and territory and federal police up there. But we also had a massive task here in Australia, which was all of these people that were um, mass exiting, exiting Bali in those two, three days afterwards that we needed to interview. We needed to stop them at the airports. We needed to talk to them, take their statements, take that, you know, see what fa what camera photos they've got, see what video they've got. And it was a massive data and information collection. And we'd never done it before. Our systems were completely overwhelmed. And I was I was trying to I was trying to work 
with my counterparts across state and territory policing and within the AFP offices. And it wasn't working, if I'm honest. And that was yeah. when my, my my colleague, a good friend who had been senior to me and had been a bit of a mentor of mine, just said, look, just no one knows what to do. Just make make some decisions, move forward, and we're all, we all want you to succeed. We're all behind you. And so, yeah, I started to do that. And I, I learned a, a really valuable lesson that I carried through the rest of my career that, you know, don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Yeah, dust, I've heard that often. Get on your yeah, I mean, it's true, right? And, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and it's probably, you know, I guess it's, it, it is said a lot, so it can be a bit trite, but I don't mean it that way because it really yeah. was, okay, I don't know the perfect solution. No one does. So, um, you know, I'm going to bring everybody on this same journey with me. And we did that. And, you know, I, I those next five or six years for me between 2002, sorry, um, yeah, 2002, 2007, 2008, were just massively influential on who I was later in life. Let's, um, and I didn't, I, I definitely didn't uh, mean my remark as I've heard that so often. I didn't no, mean no, that dis yeah. disrespectful um, because what I like about your answer, and let, let's explore it. Um, um, we see so often in government and across different kind of wicked problems, that perfection is the enemy of having a go. Um, mm. So I love the fact that you you had the courage and the I don't know the confidence and the and the backing to have a go and do something. Yeah. So do you want it? Do you want to? Um, it's obviously there's no script for this, uh, no. and this is our first time we're really looking at something that enormous. Um, Give us. Give us an example of uh, how you had a go where there was no script and you did what your mate asked you to do. Um, just lead us and we'll follow you. Yeah, so I guess simple things. We um, uh, we weren't sure how to use our case management system, you know, the police system um, that was designed for a very different circumstance. And we were trying to, trying to make it perfect. So we just said, bugger it, let's just start getting information in and we'll analyse it, we'll... we'll um, We'll test it as we go along. We'll validate it, and we'll continue to adjust. Uh, it was the same with, you know, always looking for the perfect individual to go and fill a particular role in Bali. There were no perfect individuals because no one knew what the roles were going to be required. So, we, so I, I went with a different attitude of, I just want good human beings and good cops, and I'll put them up there because I know that if there's something police can do, it's they, we can adapt. Police are incredibly adaptable, and incredibly good problem solvers. So. You know, we just knew to get get a lot of people up there um, working with. We had senior folk in Indonesia, obviously, people like Graham Ashton. Um, we just needed to get people on the ground. So, you know, and, and I was well supported. I was well supported from the commissioner down to to make this happen. Um, I was well supported in terms of our relationships with the intelligence community, our relationships with the state and territory police, because there's nothing like a crisis to bring everybody together to focus yeah. their energy. And, you know, I've said it many times before, um, you know, I used to often lament that the AFP was at its best in a crisis because, and I'm sure it's the same for all police, right? You drop all of the silly rivalries or, or personality conflicts and just get the job done. And it's a shame that we need a crisis sometimes to do that. So, look, I just I just um, started to make decisions and, and back to myself. Um, you know, they weren't silly. They wasn't irrational or... or um, you know, or, or, you know, they, they were well-considered decisions, I'd like to think, but they weren't yep. all right. Um, yep. and, and, and to your point too, it's I think it's a particular problem for policing. It's why change is so hard in policing. We are, we are trained, born and bred to follow evidence. Yeah. 
and to not move until the evidence is is clear. That's that's in our DNA mostly. So it's not a it's a reasonably short step to wanting everything to be perfect before we take the next step. And and I think we have to change that. Well, it, it doesn't work that way anymore. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um... If I look at some of the answers, I, I loved one of those answers you said. Um, I hope, can you hear that dog in the background? No, I can't. Okay, so so, so my uh, my system mutes him out. That's pretty good. <laughs> um, uh, I love this answer that you said, and not everyone does this. Um, uh, I I didn't have the right I, I didn't have the right people for the specific job. I just wanted good human beings. I wanted good police officers because police officers have the ability to adapt. You didn't actually say this term, but you um, you trusted them. You empowered them to, yeah. to, to do something that they've never, ever done before. Can you give an, an example, and even if you want to name the person, but you don't have to name them to embarrass them, but um, can you give an example where you trusted someone and they and they, they achieved something you never thought was possible in, the, yeah, in, this, I mean in this instance? There's a couple of particular officers that jumped to my mind. And, and remembering that I was in the AFP, I was a national police officer. I hadn't worked in ACT policing. So, you know, those, those rivalries, you know, I hadn't been a homicide detective. I'd done different types of investigations. So in some people's mind, this was no different to any other um, murder investigation. It was just on a scale that we hadn't dealt with before. And I, and I didn't quite accept that, but I thought, OK, I'm going to go with that because I need those skills. And there's two particular two particular um, gentlemen, one that I went through police training with and another that I, I knew out of ACT policing, but not well. Um, I won't name them, um, but they'll know who they are if they listen to this. And I remember ringing them up and I just said, I don't know what the job is that I need you to do, but I need you to go and do it. And I want to put you on the plane and you're on the plane. This is the Sunday after the, after the bombings. I said, just... And they said to me, how long do you think I'm going to be up there for? And I said, oh, um, a couple of days, maybe maybe a week or two. I mean, they were up there for months, years yeah. in, the, in the end. Yeah. Um, and I just knew that they were good people and yeah. they had a good reputation and they were, they were good investigators and I knew that they better adapt and they did. And to be honest, um, one of them at the 20th anniversary of the, um, of the Bali bombing uh, service at Parliament House last October, yeah, he's a good friend and he's a wonderful, uh, wonderful police officer. He's retired now. He used that day, that October the 12th, um, 2022, 20 years later, to announce his retirement at Parliament House mm. in front of um, dignitaries because they asked him to speak about his experiences. Yep. And, you know, I'm just enormously, enormously proud of him and everybody that went up there, right? Um, and I went up and back and forwards. I mean, my role was very different, but I just, I didn't know. I didn't really know these people. I just knew they were good people. Um, yeah. And... And they went and did a magnificent job. Well, that's um, it's so refreshing because um, I mean, there's other police stories that are completely the reverse of that, where where yeah. where the people that are get sent to do the job are um strangled by control of the person that sent them. <laughs> so um, that's yeah. a that's a big that's a big deal. That's a big deal in something so big. Yeah, and look, I mean, I'm sure they had their moments where they're pulling their hair out, and they probably uh, they they would have struggled with that age-old issue of Ford Command versus headquarters, and how do they how do they walk that tightrope? I'd like to think that we made it as easy as possible for them. There, there would have been their tensions, but you mentioned trust, and I think this is something that I think about a lot, and I thought about it more recently. Yeah, you know, that but I do trust, and 
I'm not one of these people that believes that you've got to earn my trust. You have my trust first yeah. and you'll you'll have it for a long time. You've got to do a lot to really burn that trust. Yeah. I don't believe you've got to jump through some mythical hoops or unknown um, tests to get to win my trust. I'll trust you first. And sure, that makes you more vulnerable because, mm-hmm. you know, human nature means sometimes you'll, you'll get burned. Yeah. But I also think that it's, it's a lot less um, anguish, a lot less heartache. And it's easier to trust people than it is to constantly hold grudges and not trust people. That's just that's that's so much negativity you've got to carry with you constantly, right? So yeah. I just trusted, and I've I've always done that. And sure, have I been? Yeah, you, know, you don't get you don't be in a role like commissioner and not have your moments where maybe that trust has been eroded. But I would never I'd never change that. Yeah, probably um, the beauty about interviewing someone like yourself that has this level of respect, I suppose, and honour and trust um, for other people. Um, is it, and just and as a shame, uh, I mean, I, I could, uh, the, these interviews are audio, not, they're not video, but you just look so relaxed in accounting the story, whereas someone who didn't have trust, there'd be so much angst and anguish and uh, and stress about the answer. So it's just ingrained in you. Um, so it's beautiful to see what you're talking about. Um, uh, one thing I've heard is um, you have my trust until you don't kind of thing, you know, if, yeah. if, if you do something that, to burn it. And, and that's what I was going to ask you. Um, you. You referred to the time when you were commissioner, but, you know, the, the, this, this journey started at the Bali bombing. Um, could you count on one hand the people that betrayed your trust? Oh, so it, it, yeah. So it's, but, only, yeah. it's only a very small amount very of people. Small. Yeah, yeah. Because you treated them with respect. Yeah, and and I always found people didn't want to let me down. Um, you know, I like to think I was a decent human as well, and and they didn't want to let me down. And so that breeds trust. I mean, if I trust them, they trust me, and and that builds integrity and a rapport. So yeah, definitely. And and even those people, Alan, that I would say did let me down. I, I hold no ill will to them. I actually want the best for them. Um, yeah, and there's been some high-profile ones that people will, will probably Google and know about, but I, I actually want the best for those individuals as well. I really do. I'm just, I just don't see the point in hating on people all the time. Yeah, God. I, I knew um, um, that for Mick willing to reach out to you and speak ho- so highly of you, and that's what I love about these interviews. I never never know when they, where they're going to go, um, but everyone's just if i could stop the interview now like we've been going for 30 minutes um uh mm-hmm. i could stop the interview now because you're you've just given probably the greatest lesson of leadership is um is if you trust people it kind of um it, it, it flows on <laughs> yeah i mean that's very nice alan but i'm not i'm not naive as well there'd be people that would listen to that and go oh you know what an idiot um yeah you know and 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 there were those people who will have studied my career and point to things that didn't go well who will put it down to you know my style and that's okay i'm good with that um i am what i am and i'm you know i'm very proud of what i've achieved and i'd like to think that along the way i've helped other people achieve a lot of things as well yeah uh, it's, it's a good story um so i'm conscious we've only really we're on the first <laughs> question but um how will what we'll do is i'll ask you the next question um which is something what's something about andrew colvin that no one knows and then the next question after that, while you're thinking about that, is, um, well, how were you made? So there's, um, so think about what's something about Andrew Colvin uh, that no one knows. But how were you made was um, like there's not many people 
but I find, find leaders such as yourself, um, if they were thrust into the enormity of the Bali bombing, there's, you obviously had a foundation that you relied upon to to attack it. Um, yeah. um, so when we get to how were you made, you know, there, there's parts of your life that you're probably able to put piece together where that style come from. So yeah. let's let's go to the first question then. Um, what's what something about know? Andrew Colvin that no one knows? Geez, I'm a pretty open book. I've got to be honest, Alan. I, <laughs> I'm pretty honest with people. Um, uh, I think one thing I've learned about myself, I don't know whether it's a good or a bad thing, is I never tell anyone any one person the full story. So people often ask, who are your mentors, who are your guides, coaches, and I had lots of them. I probably am a closed book insofar as I never shared everything with everybody. And I think that might be a policing thing. We have these natural protection mechanisms. But what don't they know about me? Um, look, I am <laughs> – I'll tell you one thing that people won't know about me or think rather odd. Uh, I was – my wife and I were massively into sled dog racing for a long yeah. part of our career. And as an Australian, that's a that's a really weird thing to do, right? Um, yeah. So for 10 years, we travelled around the country every winter with a, a pack of dogs, nine dogs at one point, um, camping in state forests uh, all across, camping in the snow, racing dogs, uh, because that was our love. It's still a love, um, dogs. In fact, my wife, um, she's run dogs now in North America and Russia. Uh, we've run dogs all over the country. But ultimately, we stopped it because both of our careers, it was just getting too hard to manage a big kennel of dogs and training that we were doing and traveling yeah. that we were doing. So, yeah. yeah, I guess not many people would know that. And you have to be um, the skills to have the re the re partnership with animals. Yeah, yeah. They, ha they, they either trust you or they don't. <laughs> so um, that's, a, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's pretty – that's a good yeah. story. Well done. Yeah, well, go. we, we, that's, a, that's a whole – one of my other guests <laughs> on the show, he's um, – He's an Arctic marathoner. Uh, there you go. Wow. Yeah, so, so it's, you and him can talk a fair bit. Yeah. Um, well, outside of that, I'm probably a pretty boring person, to be honest. But yeah. <laughs> I, I, I doubt it. So, the next, so let's go into it. Um, how were you made? And uh, totally, in, totally yep. in your hands here. Um, you probably know the key moments yep. uh, along the way where you learnt what to do, what not to do, probably – Maybe some of your mentors, um, we have the the moments in your yeah. hands, Andrew. So I think, like all of us, there's periods of time that shape us. Oh, you know, I was raised in, born and raised in central Queensland. I had a very, um, I had, you know, fairly standard upbringing in a loving family um, who, you know, sacrificed everything for my uh, my sister and I to, to go to a good school. I know now that they probably sacrificed a heck of a lot um, to do that. You don't know that at the time, of course. Yeah. And then I left home as a 17-year-old and joined the Army. Mm -hmm. um, and I went to ADFA. Uh, and and I, th I think my upbringing before that was one based on uh, a service. Yeah, my my mum was a volunteer. She did, you know, blue nursing, localist Edford. She was always, she was always volunteering. My dad was a public service servant with the Queensland government. He was a builder. He was always travelling around central Queensland, building schools and doing things like that. So I think I was in, it was ingrained in me a life of service, that giving to the community. Yeah. Uh, I joined the the army as a 17-year-old, barely 17, 
um, thrust down into ADFA, uh, and and yeah, that's that was a bit of a cauldron, especially at the time. That was this is 1988, 89 now, and for anyone who has looked at the history of places like ADFA and Duntroon and and the military, it was a pretty dark period in terms of bastardisation. Um, yeah, conduct that was it was not acceptable then, but certainly has been outlawed now. Yeah, uh, and I think it I think it steeled me to a degree. I was I became a bit of a grey man. I knew what I needed to do to get through. I was never going to be the shining light. I, you know, my my I tell my kids this now and they laugh. But I worked on the theory of um, 51% was wasted effort in my academics. 49% was a wasted semester. So I did what I had to do to get through. Yeah. I focused very hard on my military studies, and I was I was a good cadet. But in my second year, I met my wife, okay. um, and she was a first year cadet. And at the time, that was particularly taboo um, yeah. to have relationships in the in Adfa. Probably still is, I don't know. Uh, but it it led to it didn't lead to a lot of trouble for me, but I could see that it was potentially going to lead for trouble for my for Nat, my wife, yeah. who was also a very good army officer and is doing very well. So um, I think I think that shaped me. That two-year period galvanised me, made me strong, made me realise what you need to do to get through. But it also taught me to not be afraid to step up, to put your hand out and do something that you're not comfortable doing um, because that was what they taught you to do, right? So I was, you know, we talk now about being comfortable, being uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable for two years, but I, but I got, I worked out how to, how to survive and get through. And as I said, I did very well. Um, but it was a funny kind of story. I never really thought about being a police officer. All my life I wanted to be in the army. Um, but we made this, you know, we both independently, but at the same time kind of made this bizarre commitment, which when you think about it, I was an 18-year-old at this stage. To make a decision like this about the rest of your life, Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure what, what possessed us, to be honest. But we both said independently without talking to each other, we said, oh, if this isn't going to work if we stay. Let's get out. And both of us applied for the Australian Federal Police at the same time. Both of us were accepted at the same time, and we went to recruit training together. So it's kind of like that will probably make Isn't some it? people throw. Yeah, it'll make some people throw up in their weedies, I'm sure. But um, yeah, I was I, I was sworn in as a police officer before I was even discharged from the army. It just all happened so quickly. Just um, and and then that started my career. But I didn't join policing because of an interest in community policing. I joined policing because there was something bigger about policing that really was taking my interest. It was, you know, it was that a, it, terrorism was a very different concept to us in the late 80s to what we know it as today. But I, yeah. there was something about the AFP that that national, international aspect that that was a calling to me and I was interested in. So um, so I, I guess those those periods of time were, were highly um, yeah, they shaped me to a degree. And then, I look, I had good people I worked with, uh, good sergeants, uh, people who took interest in me. And I found that if I was prepared to put my hand up and do things that others didn't want to do, take an interest in, you know, this is early early 1990s now, like proceeds of crime, money laundering. It wasn't what we know it to be today. Mm. It was just emerging. And I took an interest in it. And the next thing I know, I'm being asked to go to Canberra as, as nothing more than a senior constable and appear yeah. before Senate committees and okay. things like that, which people just didn't do at that level of government because I, I took an interest in it. Yeah. And and people in Canberra saw an opportunity and, and encouraged me to keep expressing my views and, and working hard, and I just did that. So I, 
you know, I guess I don't know that I would say I'm the person who steps forward when everyone's asking for a volunteer, but I stand my ground while everyone else steps back. Mm. And and I guess I look around and go, oh, well, okay, if no one else is going to do it, I will. Yeah. And and that and that flowed into Bali. Like I did, it, it, it didn't daunt me. I was certainly unsure of my ability, but it didn't daunt me to have a go. And I think so. It was a range of things. I mean, everything from my upbringing and my service orientation, through to those two-year period in the in the army, and and some of my best friends today are friends from that two-year period. So it must have shaped me really um, positively uh, through to who I am today. I find, um, I mean, you've jumped. You've obviously jumped a lot, a lot of yeah, things no, there. <laughs> you've been. Uh, we'll have to we'll have to rewind the tape a little bit on a couple of that, but. I really like what you talked about that first two year period in the in the army. That's and you just finished that um, yep. that conversation with that shaped your future career. But a few, quite a few guests on the Courage to Lead interview series talk about a moment in their young life where they realised it wasn't going to work, and they had the courage to change direction. Um, so that yep. I find that quite interesting. That. That you like, you're obviously in. If you were in Adford, that was officer officer school, was yeah. it? Um, yeah. Which is a sought after career. Your relationship was potentially at risk, yeah. and you came and you came up with a solution ultimately together, even if independently, but together. Yeah. Well, this this is not going to work. Let's do something else. So yeah, that's I that's think, quite courageous. Yeah, it was probably rash as well, right? <laughs> but um, but it seems to have worked out all right. We're still married. Um. Yeah, yeah. I guess when you look back, it was, and we often think about it and go, well, "What were we thinking?" Um, but I guess it, we, I guess we knew it wasn't for us. And, and maybe when I think about that now, there was probably a moral imperative to that to say, "Well, if this is an organisation that isn't going to value the person I care about and our relationship, then I probably have to find something else." And may, and that probably was um, the strength of my upbringing. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. There'll be probably books written about those sort of things, but I'm not sure. It was just the right thing to do at the time. And, you know, I had my moments along the way. I mean, I there are many moments um, in my early AFP life and in my later AFP life where I applied for other jobs. I thought, I'm done. This isn't for me. Um, you know, I remember the one that stuck out of my mind. I wanted to be a in the mid-'90s. I was probably about five or six years in the AFP, and I applied to be a the deputy manager of Toys R Us at Moore Park in Sydney. <laughs> I didn't even get an interview, and nor should they have interviewed me, frankly. Yeah. But um, anyway, I just wanted to do I wanted to do something different, right? I tried to I tried to get a job with um, uh, Student Travel Association. Um, I just I wasn't sure what I, I was I was restless, I guess. Yeah. And I think that I am a restless person. I'm a restless leader. I'm always I'm never satisfied with the status quo. I don't yeah. believe we should ever settle for the status quo, and that made out a lot stronger for me later in life. But when I think about it, those early years, I was probably quite restless. I was always looking to do something that was different. Okay, let's explore some of that then. Um, you said you said in that, say, first six years, uh, you actually applied for a job at, as the manager of to, <laughs> Toys R Us. Deputy manager, so I wasn't even manager. So that's, uh, you know, obviously your creative mind is trying to figure out, well, what, what, what does my skill base what you know? What can I do with my skill base? Did you have a a mentor back then that moulded you, like you stayed? So did you have a mentor back then that you 
you reached out or what what made you stay was it the fact you didn't get the job or you you reassessed oh, i think i reassessed i mean i didn't get the job so that makes you reassess and and i think i started to have more fun in policing yeah so i you know i recall i changed teams i, I started to work with some folk who i thought were um you know ex- exceptional detectives we started to do some very good jobs uh and i started to enjoy myself again and have fun in the in the force uh, so that's probably what yeah uh, carried me through, and then before I know it, it's 2002, and and you know my career goes on a trajectory and a path that I hadn't anticipated. Um, but yeah, I think it's just I started having fun. I started enjoying the people I was working with. So let's, because um, we've all been in that rut. So you're yep. like that. Um, this this um, series goes all over the world, um, and it's all and, you know people listening are in are either towards their end of their career or just starting their career. And we've all we've all been in that rut that you just dis- discussed. Yeah. So how did you flip it that you yeah. decided decided to have fun and what did fun look like? So I, I guess I consciously um, wanted to challenge myself. So I sought to move out of the area that I was in, and I consciously sought out people that I wanted to work with. And you know, I even say this to this day: surround yourself with people you want to work with, and discard those that that you you don't enjoy working with now that's easier said than done especially yeah, for a junior yeah. officer but you'd be surprised how much latitude you have to focus on the people that are good influences um, and have fun like we spend so much time at work uh, and and policing can be a very negative environment because of the work that we do or the police do i don't I'm not the force anymore obviously mm-hmm. um and, and it's easy to be negative right it's easy to be um pessimistic and be very down on the job uh yeah, I guess I just kind of decided no, I wasn't going to do that anymore. Yeah. So do you want to give, um, can you give an example of what fun looked like? Is that just a, a good job or like cop, cops or emergency services have a have a black sense of humour and, yeah. and we can really roast each other? Um, yeah. Can you remember one particular time when you're talking about fun? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, the, the best time in my career was um, in the late 90s when I was working with a team who were a cracking team, were doing good work. I wasn't a senior person. I was just a, a worker. Um, and we were prepared to experiment, and that's what I liked. We were prepared to test um, how to do things and not always do things the way they'd been done. You know, we brought um, different investigative techniques in. We started to... Um, use the skills and capabilities that the AFB had in ways that hadn't been used before. And I was surrounded by good people who w- were like-minded with me. Um, we started to work with other agencies, which I've always felt policing needs to work more with other agencies. So we started to work with customs. We started to work with the state police a lot closer. Um, we built those relationships. Now, I just started having fun. I started enjoying coming to work. Um, we'd laugh. Sure, we'd go to the pub and have a drink, and and that's probably the 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 black side of policing at those in those years, but it was never inappropriate and it was never bad. Um, but we worked hard. That was the other thing too, and I was prepared to work hard. You must have, um, like you're talking about the 90s and mm. you're talking about, it, sound, it sounds like you're in an investigative field and that can be constra- constrained with the wrong kind of... Um, uh management i suppose so you yep. must have worked for someone that trusted you and empowered you to have a go yeah i did um 
and and he he in turn was trusted by the organization to get out and do things so yeah we had our our management our bosses that we didn't necessarily rate um but i was lucky that i was in an area that was empowered to get on and try and do something different it was it was actually a team that was set up on the back of some federal government funding to start to look it was on it was in the early days of the national illicit drug strategy money went to um policing generally but the afp in particular to set up you know the concept of strike teams that were able to bring together various capabilities from across the organization from outside the organization and use them in ways that hadn't been used before so i talked about um yeah money laundering and proceeds of crime i mean to this day to my knowledge we are still it is still the only job where we actually took an australian court to hong kong convened with a magistrate a defense a prosecutor in the consulate in hong kong and took evidence from hong kong witnesses uh, the the loopholes to get through to do that through the attorney general's department through squinting at the laws and the rules around mutual assistance matters and trying to make it trying to find ways to say yes rather than no um it's never been done again and no, you know that, the people who did that took they trusted us and you know I, I i look back and go that was pretty amazing that we actually took an australian court offshore into a jurisdiction um and heard evidence uh, because we couldn't get the we couldn't get the individuals to come to Australia, and it was crucial to the to the prosecution. It was a massive heroin job, the biggest heroin seizure at the time, stood for a long, long time. Um, so that that was that inspired me. It was like, well, we can think about this stuff differently. We don't have to do it the same way because everybody else has done it that way. And you know, I think that made me have a lot more fun. Well, that's been, that's very. I can only just uh, ponder. Like we've all it, it, those of us in law enforcement have worked in those settings where there are legal advisors saying no all the time Absolutely. um so well you know how hard it is even between jurisdictions in australia right to yeah. do extraditions and share yeah. information so yeah that yeah. just inspired me that we can be different that's huge that's a huge huge story so you kind of um you started this you you've talked about this is the 90s the late 90s so then yep. You, t you took us up to 2002 where the Bali bombings happens and your leadership role in that. And then yep. it sounds like you were involved in that till at least, what, 2008, 2009? Or? So I went through a couple of promotions um, in that period, uh, including um, a, a stint as the Commissioner's Chief of Staff at the time. Uh, so I was counterterrorism for four years. I went through a few promotions in that time. And that was at a time when you know, we, we started to build the framework, so the joint counterterrorism teams that we're all very familiar with in policing today that you would know well didn't exist then. We had to build them. Mm -hmm. That wasn't straightforward. We had a second bombing in Bali. We had the embassy bombing in, in Jakarta. We had the JW Marriott bombing in Jakarta. We had, you know, the region was a hot spot for terrorism, and all of a sudden the AFP and Australia was at the centre of working with our counterparts overseas to do that. So, you know, I was on the road a lot. I was travelling a lot, um, uh, and it was just that it was a it was a you know a time where I, I learned a lot about myself, um, mm. and that led to an opportunity. The the then commissioner gave me an opportunity, Mick Kelty, to be his chief of staff, which which I think introduced me to the politics of policing, and started to see um, the context that policing sits in. Um, yeah, and then look, and I, I was, you know, you're, I was extremely fortunate that in 2009, I was, I won a position. I had to go through some testing, but I won a position to go overseas and study my masters at Harvard Kennedy School. Wow. So I took my family and I went and I took 12 months off 
policing essentially and studying for my master's at the Kennedy School. And now that was um, life changing in terms of what an amazing opportunity and I'll forever be grateful and conscious that not everybody gets that opportunity. So, you know, I'm not I'm not naive to the fact that not everyone gets that. Yeah. Um, but also it it opened my eyes, Alan, like, I mean, you're, you're in policing for a long time. Unless you consciously try, and I felt that I was a fairly open-minded police officer, but it wasn't until I got into that environment where I had colleagues from all over the world at that school, I had lecturers from all over the world who'd been places and done things. It wasn't until I got there and started to realise that there's a much bigger perspective to what we do. There's a much bigger world that policing sits in. And I started to think about my place in policing and the AFP's place and, and Australia's law enforcement um, contribution through a very different lens and position it in an international global context rather than what I think we've traditionally done. We've looked down and in rather than up and out. Wow. Just that I'm, you can see I'm writing notes. So yeah. <laughs> And, and you see this photo behind me too. I mean, it's I a, am. Is that? Tell me. It's. I think I know. But who is it? Yeah, it's Kennedy. So it was a photo that was on the wall um, at the Kennedy School at, at Harvard that just always stuck out to me, and I've kept it with me forever since then. So this is 2009, 10. Um, because so what it is, he's basically in the Oval Office. It's probably a staged photo because I can't imagine too much of what he did in the Oval Office wasn't staged. But it, it's a fairly famous photo if you Google Kennedy. He's leaning over. He looks like he's got the world on his shoulders, and and this, and it, he has frankly. It's not the Cuban Missile Crisis; it's before that. It's when he was dealing with the steel crisis in in the US, where the steel companies um, colluded basically to jack the prices up at a time when he was going on a huge shipbuilding and militarization of the US economy, and and they were gouging basically, and he took them on anyway. The the point of the photo is it just I used to look at it and think. This is this person who's been held up, forget about his politics for a minute, he's been held up as a you know, flawed character, yes, but a great leader. And he was doing it tough and it's hard. And it just reminded me, that if, we, if we're having a proper dig at this and we're trying to be good leaders and we're trying to make change and we're trying to do the right thing, it will be hard yeah. and get ready for it to be hard. So that's stuck with that photo. It sat all through my office when I was a deputy. It sat in my office. As commissioner, so many of my good friends and colleagues would take the piss out of me about the photo, but it meant something to me. I totally get that. I totally get yeah. that. Um, it's kind of some some of the things you're saying. It's like you've read my book already, and you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to that. <laughs> um, look, I really want to explore because um, I can see your influence on Mick Willing because he ended yep. up in Harvard as well. He did. Um, he did. So do you want to do you want to share with us like the rest of us plebs? Have never been to Harvard, um, but we we see it on some of these shows um, that we watch on television in awe. Um, do you want to just give some key moments yeah. of of what Harvard was to you and and how it changed you? And something you said um, before you went into that. Um, I think I wrote it down. You actually had a chance between 2002 to 2009, you had a ch you learned a lot about myself in those yep. years. Do you want to explore what did you learn about yourself and then take us into Harvard and what what so changed I, for you? I, I think I learned that, um, you know, lots of good and negative things, right? I think I learned that I'm, I'm quite resilient. Uh, 
but that doesn't come without its toll, which I didn't understand until much later, probably after I left policing. I learned that I need to understand context. To me, context is so important. Like even the questions I have asked you before this podcast was just to have context in my mind. Like I, I'm someone who likes to envisage the situation I'm walking into. Um, and you know, people would, my, my staff would often get frustrated with me because I might be going to do a presentation or a speech somewhere, which I really enjoyed doing. And I'd be less focused on the words of the speech. I'd go through it and write it mostly myself. Yeah. But I want to know, what will the room set up be like? Will I be? Will I have to use a lectern, or can I just walk around? Can I? Will I? You know, I, I, context is so important to me, and I learned that in the political sphere as well. That you need to understand. It might be okay for the AFP and policing to have a firm view on something, but have we stopped to take a moment to understand the other person's perspective? So put yourself in the shoes of the person you're trying to negotiate. What are they trying to get out of this situation? And I, I learned a lot about that as we. You know, at the time of the Bali bombings, the relationship between policing and the national security community, the intelligence community, was kind of non-existent. We yeah. we had SACPAV. We would all train around a hostage situation on an aircraft on a tarmac, right, which was kind of ludicrous because that wasn't yeah. a situation we were likely to face. And everyone would go home at the end of the day and go, yep, we're great. But we never shared intelligence. We never actually came to conclusions together. We never um, talked about mutual outcomes. So... I worked hard on that and I learned that I, I wasn't bad at that. I wasn't bad at building trust in other agencies. I wasn't bad at understanding the context and where they were coming from. So as I say, when I got to Harvard, I think that I was a reasonably open-minded individual and my wife has always kind of been my guiding stick on that to keep me grounded and keep yeah. me thinking about a bigger perspective. But the Kennedy School is amazing, right? Um, forget about the academics. You had to do a lot of – I had to go back and do – algebra and um, arithmetic and macroeconomics, things that just there's not a police officer's plot. But you know the thing I learned, you had, this, you had before, before I could be accepted, I had to set a thing called, um, I think it was called GIMS, G-I-M-S, but it's basically a standardisation test that you need to sit. It's a six-hour exam to get into these higher education facilities in the US. Now, at school, I was a math science person. I wasn't greatest at English. Probably did a bit of history, but I wasn't very good at it. I was math, science, physics, uh, geometrical drawing, perspective, that type of thing. I did this test, uh, mathematics. I did mathematics one and two at school, um, did quite well at it. I did this test, which was now probably 20 years after I'd left school, and I was completely useless at the mathematics, hmm. but I scored off the chart in terms of analysis and context. So my ability to read a situation and then write about it I did, and that was what got me in there. If it had just been my mathematics, I would never have got in. But I, I, I did well enough in the analytical and the comprehension side of the exams, and it made me think, wow, I would have said I was a math science person and that I was black and white. But mm. I think I started to realise I wasn't. And this is where cops don't realise how good we are at assessing situations and analysing situations and making decisions. So anyway, forget all that for a minute. I mean, the the 12 months at Kennedy School was amazing. Um, the, the the lectures and the classes I took were great, and there's a couple that I'll talk about in particular, but the real benefit was the other people. So on my program, my master's program, there's probably 200 people all across the world. Um, and the Kennedy School being what it is, it attracts people to either be lecturers or guest presenters because they want to go and talk at Kennedy School. So, yeah. you know, what I, I took a class in crisis leadership, I think it was, my lecturer 
had just come out of the Bush administration as the Deputy National Security Advisor. So there she is talking to us about the decisions around Iraq and how they made those decisions and why they made them and what was what worked and what wasn't. I mean, that was as contemporary as you could yeah. possibly get in 2009. It was just amazing. But they also did these other things, which they used to call them, and you know, universities do them everywhere, brown bag lunches, where you bring your own lunch, you go to the library, you sit down, and there'll be an interesting speaker. So I had I had a good friend who was the from the Israeli um, military army, and also had two good friends who were out of Palestine. They were active in the Palestinian government. They were um, negotiators for peace treaties, negotiators for land settlements. Um, and we went to a brown bag lunch. I remember this like it was yesterday. And it was the national security advisor to um, Netanyahu, who had been prime minister of Israel back in that time in one of his first iterations. This was his national security advisor. And he came, he's just written a book. I can't think of his name is, but it will come back to me if I went looking. He came and sat down at this um, brown bag lunch. There would have been no more than six people who turned up, including my two colleagues from Palestine, and my colleague from the Israeli um, Defence Force, yeah. and we just chatted about Israel. And now here's a kid from Rockhampton who's a cop. Yeah. What the hell, what right do I have to be in that conversation? But yeah. it just it just opened my eyes to something far bigger than myself, far bigger than the than what I was doing. So that was regular later on. That was every week there'd be someone interesting coming along. I mean, one of my classmates... I don't think there's anything wrong with me saying this because it's public. He was the son of um, um, the Indonesian president, Yudhiyono. Okay. And the Indonesian president came and spoke to uh, Kennedy School and he spoke about um, Indonesia's place in the world and and the role that he saw it was important. And Indonesia was very it was very important to him because I'd spent a lot of, a lot of time there, obviously. So it was these moments that were just mind-blowing for me. Um, yeah. As I said, who, who, what right do I have to be in the room with some of these individuals? And I learned a lot, but I also did a couple of courses that um, that that stayed with me, uh, not necessarily because of the lecturers, but because of what they were. One of them was an ethics in leadership program. We will do ethics programs, yeah. right? That's not unusual. But this particular lecture was was brilliant, um, and the way he constructed his lessons and the way he encouraged us to think very deeply about ethical dilemmas and leadership positions and decisions that we're going to have to make. Um, and and never, there was never a right answer to any of it, right? There never is to these things. But it taught, it, it reinforced in my mind that the ends doesn't justify the means. Yeah, so I, I became a strong proponent right through to my bushfire days that how we do things is as important as what we do. And if we focus on the how, the what becomes easier. And then the other one that some of your listeners will get a bit of a joke and laugh at this. There was a program called Women in Leadership, um, which will make sense when you think about what I did after this. But um, it was run by a a professor, Barbara Kellerman, who was a very strong feminist academic, written a lot. And it was a women in leadership program that no male had ever done the course in the history of this course being run at the Kennedy Ah. School. No male had done it. And I said to two of my mates who were Coast Guard officers, I said, let's do it. And they're like, oh, really? Will we, will, you know, will we be able to okay? Will we be able to, will we be able to do it? Anyway, our respective wives said, you idiots, do it. Yeah. Um, so we did this course, right? And and all of a sudden, there I am. I'm one of three men in a class of probably seventy or eighty women, talking about issues in women leadership and women's life and women's um, journeys. That was was I was ignorant to it. I was naive to it, right? And 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 she had she's had this saying it's nothing it's nothing 
of the earth shattering, but it just made sense to me. She gave us a terribly hard time. It was a tongue-in-cheek <laughs> way, right? Um, and we did well in the program, um, but she said, nothing is going to change if nothing changes. Yeah. And I know that sounds obvious, right? But it just stuck with me that we've got to be prepared to make changes if we want the outcome to be different. And yeah. too often, particularly with that issue of gender, um, we would all say that we wanted something better, but we weren't prepared to change anything. Or when it, when the crunch came, well, it's like, oh, no, I don't want to do that yeah. because that might affect me negatively or it might be hard. So courses like, courses like that were amazing. Um, and they opened my eyes, right? They just exposed me to things that when I came back into the AFP, by this stage, um, I went across as an assistant commissioner. I was very fortunate that the commissioner at the time saw good faith in me and promoted me. I went through a process while I was over there promoted me and held a position open for me. I came back as a deputy commissioner in charge of operations. And I just started to think about things differently. Of course um, you did. Yeah. Wow. So you were there for 12 months. 12 months, best 12 months of our lives. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can imagine, like your family. I love your LinkedIn profile. It starts off with <laughs> father. Yeah, I think it says a husband and yeah. father, doesn't it? Hey. Yeah, husband, father. Um, so many people go mad at me for that because they say it's not professional. You should change. I'm like, no, that's who I am. Yeah, it. yeah, no, it says it says it says a lot about you. Um, so there must be a lot of family stories about um, about that time. Do you want to like that's that's a unique opportunity for you, but for your family as well. Is there something that you want to share about what yeah. what your family uh, experienced over there that that moulded you? Yeah, as a family. Um, yeah, very much. And I will come back to the McWilling thing too. Uh, yeah, so my girls went to just a local elementary school. I think they were kind of kindergarten and grade three, something like that. Um, here they are, blonde-haired Aussies in a school where they were the only blonde-haired Aussies, um, yeah. no, blonde-haired students, frankly. It was a, a school where, a school where um, it was a large Armenian population, actually. Um, and it was just an elementary school. It wasn't a private school or anything like that. And they had the best education. So my oldest daughter has some health challenges that yeah. you know, are reasonably well documented. And we didn't realise until we got there that she was probably behind the curve on where she needed to be with her reading and her literacy skills. And this teacher, uh, Miss Cole, I'll never forget her, um, she just took her under a wing and said, no, we're going to teach this girl and bring her up to where we think she needs to be. Um, and, and, you know, I... I my girls don't see colour. I love that. They don't yeah. see race. Um, yeah. I think that's yeah. the beauty of the generation that's come through that's behind true. us. Yeah. Yep, they just don't see it. And I remember there's a story my youngest daughter was trying to relay about a boy who had helped her in the playground. And she gave every description of this kid possible, except the fact that he was black. Yeah. It just was kind of irrelevant to her. And, yeah. and once we worked that out, we knew exactly who the boy was, but it was like, Oh, I didn't see that. Um, it was all, you know, his hair colour and the sports he played and his name. And so it was just, it was a good opportunity for the girls as well. Um, we travelled a lot. New England, um, New England's a beautiful part of the US, very unlike uh, the rest of the US. It was at a time when Wi-Fi and um, off-campus learning was, was probably more advanced in the US than it was here. Yeah. So I could have my laptop. I'd be at uni three or four days a week. Um, I could... I could travel on weekends to, you know, yeah, the Berkshires or up into Vermont or Maine or, or wherever it might be, um, Newport, Rhode Island, and still study because mm. I could just open my laptop and there'd be a Starbucks or a coffee shop or, or you know, towns had Wi-Fi that I could just access. So yeah. it, it was an amazing experience. Wonderful. Wonderful. So 
Thank you for sh for sharing. I mean, that's this behind any leadership journey. There's the family journey as well, yep. and it's how successful um, or how dysfunctional that is sometimes. Um, so we're back in Australia. You've you've been promoted to deputy commissioner of operations. Um, yep. What what date are we here? What what year is that? 2010, so mid 2010, June, uh, July 2010. So only two years, uh, we're still four, four years away from when you get yep. promoted to commissioner. So I'm in your hands. What what <laughs> happens? What happens? Um, yeah, look, I, I had my moments as deputy as well, um, where I wasn't sure that the job was right for me because I think I'd had this amazing experience. I'd come back into policing, I'd come back into the AFP. Yes, the AFP was different to what I'd left, but not demonstrably different. Um, so that created some challenges in my mind about, is this what I want to do anymore? Um, I stuck at it because uh, a couple of things, people like Mick Willing, um, you know, Mick says nice things about me, but the reality is it's a two-way street. And I've always said that to him. I learned as much from him and was inspired by him as as whatever he got out of our relationship. So but I remember that, Mick. So he was, while you were a deputy commissioner, is when he approached you to be his mentor. Yeah. Yeah, okay. so he was the chief of staff to the then New South Wales Police Deputy and Dave Owens. So Dave yeah. approached me and said, AJ, would you spend some time with this um, young guy that I've got coming through? I think he's worth investing in and I think you'd get on welding. I said, sure. So we caught up and our relationship went from there and I saw something in Mick that I that I felt in myself, but I saw that he was um, he had a massive career ahead of him and I, I felt that with the right support, he can make a huge difference in the New South Wales police. So yeah. we just started to talk. And, we, and and the more he spoke to me about his views of the world, his views of policing, the more I saw a synergy. Well, yeah, terrible word, right? But the more I could see that I, that I understood him. Yeah. And, and I think we both had that same philosophy that we want to do good things. We don't just want to do things the way they've always been done. So... Yeah, he says that I mentored him. I think it was a two-way street, and we learn off each other. You know, I gave him tips and things that I'd learnt from Kennedy School to, you know, I've never been a big goal setter, but, I, you know, I, I, I have thoughts in mind of what I want to do, and we talked a lot about that, and we stayed close, and we're still close today, and we had opportunities to do work together after um, I left policing as well with the bushfires. Yeah, okay, yeah. So I know about that time, so there's... I mean, that's a pretty uh, a mentor relationship is a very personal thing and if it, and if it really works exactly what you said you, you share some pretty uh, deep secrets with each other yep. because because you trust each other and yeah yep. so it's beautiful to hear how close that was so do you want to take us um uh through to do you want to talk much more about deputy commissioner or do you want to talk about probably just to say one thing um there was something that aipm did at the time that all the commissioners got together and agreed that we needed to spend we needed to give our the next the next cadre of future leaders in the organizations the potential commissioners the potential deputy commissioners an opportunity to come together so i was part of an experimental thing called pls police leadership s i can't remember what it was but basically it was deputy commissioners and assistant commissioners that each commissioner is nominated to go and and spend three days together over four sessions over the course of 18 months. And it wasn't about policing. It was about who we are and challenging our thinking and challenging our perspectives and learning from each other and sharing deeply. Now, I was probably fortunate that that group, I would still cast as some of my best friends today, 
certainly my closest colleagues that I would share a lot with. And these were people, and Alan, you'll know this, and police have always had inter-jurisdictional rivalries, right? Yeah. These were deputies of New South Wales Police, deputies of Victoria, you know, people like Graham Ashton, Kath Byrne, Nick Keldis, um, Mike Phelan, Grant Stevens, uh, um, Reese Kershaw. These yep. are people who have gone on to be, uh, Paul Jeftovic, they've gone on to head either their organisations or other organisations. And I can't speak for them, although I think I would be confident in saying that it was a really important experience. Because when I started that, I was probably ready to get out of policing. I was probably like, yeah, I probably racked my queue here. I'm not sure that... I'm not sure that this is right for me anymore. That did two things. One, it gave me a kick up the backside to say, you're not a quitter. Yeah. But two, it made me realise that my thought process and the thoughts I was having weren't different to others. Everybody was doubting themselves at these levels. You, I mean, only narcissists think that they're right all the time. Um, and I, so I, was, I became comfortable going, okay, it's okay. It's, I don't need to, I don't, I'm not odd because I think this isn't working. So that turned in my mind from being concerned about whether this was the future for me to go in. Now, I've got ideas and my ideas are as valid as anybody else's. So I want an opportunity to shape and influence with those ideas. Pretty wonderful. Um, I, I'm, and I'm just conscious of something. Um, I know what you're talking about with AIPM, but a lot of listeners all over the world will never clue what those, no. those that, 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 that acronym is. Do you want to ex just explain what that is, please? Yeah, so AIPM is the Australian Institute of Police Management. It's a it's a common police service across all jurisdictions in the country that is, that is established for the sole purpose of bringing on the senior leadership cadre of policing in this country. So it's commissioned officer and above it's you know the, the brits have a similar thing with their policing college um us don't uh but canada has a not dissimilar concept as well and it's really designed to to look take senior executives round them out and make them better human beings but better police officers better leaders through a, through what is essentially uncomfortable reflection uncomfortable vulnerability and learning off others it was not about, um, it was, I don't recall ever going to AIPM and doing courses that were about how to be a police officer. Um, you know, the process, the legislation, the governments, the practices, we all know that. You wouldn't be where you were. It was about who we are as individuals and who you we want to be as I, I think I've experienced, um, I haven't experienced it at your level, Andrew, but uh, I have experienced some of those sessions at the Australian Institute of Police Management at Manly. Um, and you just summarised it pretty quick, pretty good actually. I thought uh, being better human beings, um, being being um, uh, periods of uncomfortable reflection, uncomfortable vulnerability, and learning off others. Can you remember one of those sessions that kind of illustrates that? Because I think this is this is kind yeah. of the core of um, probably what keeps you up at night. What what's one decision that that you wished you've made a different decision or, or you you still struggle with? Is this the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, in terms of that program, the uncomfortableness came from sharing. And I kind of would put my hand up pretty quickly to go, all right, I'll be the first to share. This is how I'm thinking about things. This is where I think my weaknesses are. Um, this is what I think I'm good at. Um, and, you know, it was through that program that I had a lightning bolt moment of, you know, one of the facilitators, a guy called Robbie McPherson, if you know, listeners are out there, come across him, he's brilliant. Um, and, and Warwick Jones as well. 
they said the problem with you, Andrew, is you step forward into every problem and you build um, dependency, not capabilities. So in, in when you confront a challenge, you, you tend to try and solve it yourself rather than allow others to grow around you and solve it. And I've carried that with me for 10 years. Still don't think I've got that right. Um, okay. Still work on it really hard to say don't you know, build capability, don't build dependency. Um, but there's things like that, and and that came out of me sharing pretty openly about what my um, challenges were in policing, and yeah, you know, at times I probably had fallen out of love with the AFP. Um, yeah, so there's those things, but uh, yeah, there's lots of moments throughout your commissionership. I through my commissionership, I don't look back um, with regret, but I look back and think I wish things had gone differently. I wish I'd made different decisions. Okay, um, so yeah. so I think we've um, uh, uh, this is where I'm totally in your hands. So we're we're <laughs> we're in the Australian Institute of Police Management, where the senior leaders of all the the state police forces are brought together to be moulded into better human beings and better leaders. Yeah. Um, so you're there as a deputy commissioner, um, yeah. and now I think we're we're knocking on the door of when you became commissioner, um, which yeah. was between 2014. And 2019. Yep. So, um, do you want to tell us about that? Well, like, what what does that mean to you? What does that mean to your family? What does that mean to the people you lead? And yep. obviously, there's times you just kind of touched at it. I wish I'd done it differently. Um, yep. There's times you would have been exceptionally proud. Um, and there's, yeah. I, I've heard at, at another level, like you're essentially the CEO. Being the CEO is very lonely because you can't, yeah, you can't really talk to anyone. So, in your hands, um, yeah, you take yeah, us so, where you want to take us. Well, I think we've just been treated to an unbelievable uh, leader who has given us an insight of what it truly takes to have the courage to be a leader and do things differently when change needs to happen. But Andrew's been pretty honest and open about what weaknesses he has in the leadership field. And he says that he still works on this today. He learnt uh, in one of the leadership journeys that he had at the Australian Institute of Police Management that his own leadership trait was when he confronted a problem, he steps right in and builds and he builds dependency on himself rather than build the capacity of others around him. So he's worked really hard on that trait and still thinks he still needs to improve in it. But it's an interesting trait because um, it comes down to trusting the people around you to do what you need them to do, which is quite obvious from Andrew's story so far that he has an extreme level of trust and he's really hard on his, on his own weaknesses. So that leaves at part one. Part two will happen in two weeks time. And as we embark on part two, that's when we hear all about Andrew's journey as the Australian Federal Police Commissioner. Until that time, thanks for listening.